President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. If the president was the party's nominee, would you support him? Uh, the nominee of the party? Absolutely. All right, I give up. I just can't anymore. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California, on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York, WFRZ, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, and Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdon Square Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week. Usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but today, once again, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler, a host of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at nicolesandler.com, and happy to be here when uh, Brad and Desi need a day off. In this case, too, because they're off celebrating Desi's birthday, and that's okay. There's a lot going on. (laughs) There's a lot of news, and wow, CPAC is happening. And oh my goodness, we're going to need a diversion from CPAC. You know, the thing is, CPAC can be entertaining. It depends on your mindset while you're watching what's going on. You can either be horrified by the proceedings or you can look at it as comic relief. The thing is, I don't find it funny. I find it really frightening. Little things like... Well, just simply the announcement that they made at the beginning to wear a mask. Please, everyone, when you're in the ballroom, when you're seated, you should still be wearing a mask. So if everybody can go ahead, work on that. I know, I I know it's it's not the most fun. You, You have the right. You have the right to set the own rules in your own house. And we're borrowing somebody else's house. So we need to comply with our rules. So thank you all for putting on your masks. I wear a mask when I'm in the halls. And we're going to comply with our rules. Thank you, everyone. Have a good conference. So that happened. (laughs) And then there's, you know, Ted Cruz. Now, Ted Cruz was trying to be funny. Like, just lighten up. Especially now, the left... They are shrill. They are angry. How many leftists does it take to screw in a light bulb? That's not funny! Wow. Not funny. No, 
not funny at all. And he's calling Democrats shrill. Bernie is wearing mittens. And AOC is telling us she was murdered. (laughs) And the media desperately, desperately, desperately wants to see a Republican civil war. So you get where this is going. That's what's happening at CPAC and it's going on all weekend long. So later on in the hour, we're going to have a bit of comic relief because after listening to that, I need something that's really funny, that's intended to be funny and actually makes me laugh. So we'll end the show on a comical note. But for now, let's get to the news. The long-awaited report on the murder of Jamal Khashoggi was released Friday afternoon by the Biden administration. And the conclusion is that Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman had approved the killing of the Washington Post journalist. The report reads, quote, We assess that Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman approved an operation in Istanbul, Turkey, to capture or kill Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. A senior administration official said, quote, we've made it clear that this administration will not sweep anything under the rug and that President Biden will follow the law. And he added that the release was in honor of Jamal and this horrific crime and added our aim going forward is to make sure nothing like this ever happens again. So the president did speak with the Saudi king. King, not crown prince. On Thursday, he pledged to work to make bilateral ties between our two countries, quote, as strong and transparent as possible. This is the first conversation, obviously, between Biden and King Salman since Joe Biden became president. And the timing was specific because they spoke before the release of the report. Of course, Saudi Arabia has denied that the 35-year-old crown prince had anything to do with the journalist's murder. All righty then. Well, the long-awaited decision by the Senate parliamentarian on including the proposed minimum wage increase in the coronavirus stimulus bill was finally announced, though it wasn't the one we were hoping for. Elizabeth McDonough ruled Thursday that Democrats cannot include raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour in the $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package. She said the proposal did not meet the requirements to be included in the package under the budget reconciliation process, which is what Democrats are using to pass the stimulus bill with just a simple majority. Even if they did have approval to include the provision in the bill, it was still a tough go. Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema both opposed raising the minimum wage, which has been at $7.25 an hour since 2009. Manchin suggested an $11 minimum wage instead. Now, this ruling only applies to the Senate. Nancy Pelosi announced that the House will hold a vote on the relief package Friday as is, with the minimum wage provision still included. There's also an effort by progressives to push Vice President Kamala Harris to use her constitutional role as president of the Senate to overrule the parliamentarian. Congressman Ro Khanna of California tweeted Thursday night, I'm sorry, an unelected parliamentarian does not get to deprive 32 million Americans the raise they deserve. 
This is an advisory, not a ruling. Vice President Harris needs to disregard and rule a $15 minimum wage in order. We were elected to deliver for the people. It's time we do our job. Wow. Others are sending out similar statements, but the White House is against that idea. What happens next? I don't know. But Bernie Sanders isn't giving up. He already said that he'll file an amendment to take tax deductions away from large corporations that don't pay above a $15 an hour minimum wage. Politico is reporting Friday afternoon that Chuck Schumer is actually considering adding language to the Democrats' COVID bill that would penalize big companies that don't pay workers at least $15 an hour. A similar concept to what Bernie Sanders proposed on Thursday night after the minimum wage was tossed from reconciliation. And Senate Finance Chair Ron Wyden's office released his proposed Plan B Friday morning. Wyden wants to slap a 5% penalty on corporations' payrolls if their workers earn less than a certain threshold. In a statement, Wyden said, quote, at the same time, I want to incentivize the smallest of small businesses, those with middle class owners, to raise their workers' wages. My plan would provide an income tax credit equal to 25% of wages, up to $10,000 per year per employer, to small businesses that pay their workers higher wages. Now I guess we wait and see what happens. The other big breaking news story from Thursday night, the Biden administration announced that the U.S. military carried out airstrikes on a site in Syria used by two Iranian-backed militia groups. The strikes marked the first known military action under Biden and were in response to rocket attacks on American forces in the region over the past two weeks. A February 15th rocket attack on coalition forces near the Erbil International Airport in Iraqi Kurdistan killed a civilian contractor and injured nine others. Iran denied involvement in the attack. The U.S. strikes come as Washington and Tehran are positioning themselves for negotiations about the nuclear deal, potentially complicating an already shaky process. So more details about the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol building are coming to light as hearings begin. On Thursday, the House Appropriations Committee heard for the first time testimony from the acting Capitol Police Chief, Yogananda Pittman, about what unfolded on that day. She backed up the testimony we heard Tuesday in the Senate from her predecessor, that would be former Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund. He testified that he had requested backup from the National Guard by 12.58 p.m. on January 6th and continued to call for the next hour. In that same Senate hearing on Tuesday, the former House Sergeant-at-Arms, Paul Irving, insisted that he never received a request for National Guard backup until 1.28. Pittman also testified that 35 officers are being investigated for their behavior on the day of the insurrection. Six have been suspended and had their police powers revoked. We need more information on that. And finally, Chief Pittman revealed that militia groups tied to the January 6th uprising have reportedly discussed a desire to, quote, blow up the Capitol. We know that members of the militia groups that were present on January 6th have stated their desires that they want to blow up the Capitol and kill as many members as possible 
uh, with a direct nexus to the State of the Union, which we know that date has not been identified. So based on that information, we think that it's prudent that Capitol Police maintain its enhanced and robust security posture until we address those vulnerabilities going forward. And now we've learned that the U.S. attorney in D.C. is investigating whether members of Congress gave recontours of the Capitol to some of these insurrectionists before the January 6th siege. The House on Tuesday passed the Equality Act. It would prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. The vote was 225 to 206, with just three Republicans joining all the Democrats in voting yes. Now, the House previously passed this bill back in 2019, but the Senate, then led by Republicans, blocked it. The prospects for its passage are somewhat better this year because Democrats now control the House, the Senate and the White House. But Republicans could still block the legislation in the Senate, which is split 50-50. Democrats would need 60 votes to get past a potential filibuster. Just one more reason why we need to get rid of the filibuster. From the hypocrisy is deep files, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Thursday night went on Fox and said that he would absolutely support Donald Trump if he's the 2024 Republican nominee for president. What? If the president was the party's nominee, would you support him? Uh, The nominee of the party? Absolutely. Mitch McConnell said that it was Trump who was responsible for provoking the January 6th attack on the Capitol. There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. The people who stormed this building believed they were acting on the wishes and instructions of their president. And having that belief was a foreseeable consequence of the growing crescendo of false statements, conspiracy theories, and reckless hyperbole, which the defeated president kept shouting into the largest megaphone on planet Earth. That is the sound of a man with no spine. Somebody get Mitch McConnell to surgery quick. And finally, the Supreme Court will hear two cases on Tuesday that could put the final nail in the coffin of the Voting Rights Act. Seriously, this coming Tuesday, I saw an article in Vox written by Ian Milheiser that explains the whole thing. And I thought I need to call Ian Milheiser. So we'll take a quick time out, come back on the other side and find out what's happening on Tuesday. Uh, I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. No, to vote, you got to fight for your right to vote. It shouldn't be that way. Voting should be a right that comes with citizenship, but it doesn't always work out that way. Uh, welcome back to the broadcast. I'm your guest host today, Nicole Sandler, filling in for Brad and Desi one more time. And, uh, you know, Brad does a great job of covering voting issues. 
And we all know when it comes to voting, we've got issues. (laughs) Well, come Tuesday, we may have even more. Over at Vox.com, I saw a story earlier this week written by Ian Milhauser uh, about, well, it's called Two Supreme Court Cases Could Destroy What Remains of the Voting Rights Act. Oh, great. So I read it, and after reading it, I figured... I need to talk to Ian Milheiser. Ian Milheiser is a senior correspondent at Vox. That would be Vox with a V, where he focuses on the Supreme Court, the Constitution, and it says the decline of liberal democracy in the United States. Did you come up with that line? I I mean, I wrote my own bio, (laughs) but um, unfortunately, that's been a whole lot of what I've been writing about this last year. Definitely, unfortunately. I should mention that you have another book coming out, The Agenda, How a Republican Supreme Court is Reshaping America. That's set for a March 30th release. Um, And just based on the title, yeah, it looks like that's where we are, and that's what we're going to talk about today, too. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I have a whole chapter in there focused on voting rights. Um, and, you know, how this Supreme Court is going to make it harder and harder for Democrats to compete fairly in an electoral system that's already tilted towards Republicans. Right. And, and you know, we knew this was coming because of the assault that the Trump administration uh, carried out over four years on our judiciary. Um, and we know what they did at the Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, there are those of us who are idealistic that we're hoping that with the Democrats controlling Congress, that they, they'd use their newfound majority to fully reinstate the Voting Rights Act. <laughs> but you wrote a piece um, that is at Vox.com. That you put up on uh, Tuesday. Uh, the headline reads, the Supreme Court is about to hear two cases that could destroy what remains of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and this is happening on Tuesday. So this is coming up. People need to know about this. Yeah, yeah no, there's an argument in these two cases on Tuesday. It's a Brnovich v. Democratic National Committee and Arizona Republican Party v. Democratic National Committee are the two cases. And these are really big. Um, you know, the Supreme Court. So first of all, the Voting Rights Act is the law which prevents racial voter discrimination. You know, it, it prevents the literacy tests that we that we saw during Jim Crow. It prevents states from, you know, singling out black neighborhoods or Latino neighborhoods and trying to make it harder for people in those neighborhoods to vote. Um, and the Supreme Court has been chipping away at this law for quite some time now. I mean, really, you know, since, I guess, 2013, I believe. Right, with Shelby, right? uh, um, With Shelby County. Right. Yeah, you know, that, and so they've been chipping away at it for a while, and these cases could really stick the dagger in the wall. I mean, I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to say that the Voting Rights Act is unconstitutional, but what I think it is fairly likely to do is to water down the Voting Rights Act so much that it just becomes meaningless. You know, it becomes almost impossible to win a voting rights case. And then states will be free to engage in really widespread racist voter discrimination in order to prevent black people from voting, to prevent brown people from voting. And, of course, really what's going on here is to prevent Democrats. From voting. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2013, you mentioned the Shelby County, it was Shelby County versus Holder, and the Supreme Court basically un, didn't totally do away with Section 5, but but defanged it. 
and and section That's five it. was the pre-clearance uh, process that states that had proven to violate that they violated uh, voters' rights in the past on racial along racial lines had to have pre-clearance for any changes they want to make to their electoral laws. Am I explaining that even closely correctly? Yeah, no, that's right. So, so broadly speaking, the Voting Rights Act does three things. Okay. Um, so the first thing that you did, like you mentioned, is preclearance. And what preclearance means is that states that had a long history of racist voter discrimination, and that's, you know, that's a lot of southern states, but it also, I mean, Arizona, because of how it had treated voters of color in, in Arizona, like they were implicated. So there was a list of states and, and jurisdictions where because they had a history of racist discrimination, mm-hmm. um, any new voting rule in those states had to be pre-clearing is the term. You know, it had to be approved by officials in D.C. Right. The so Justice the Department. Right? That right. The racist law wouldn't go into effect until someone had looked at it to make sure that it wasn't racist. Um, so, so that's the first prong. The second prong is called the intent test. And that just means that, th- that a state can't pass a law or like a local legislature can't pass a law which, with the intent of discriminating on the basis of race in elections. So, you know, if, if you know, like North Carolina, for example, they passed a law several years or a few years ago, actually, where they looked at um, racial data for how voters of different races tended to vote and basically wrote the law with the intent of making it harder for black people to vote. Mm. And so that would violate the intent test because their intention was to discriminate against black people. Um, the pro the problem with the intent test is there was a case called Abbott v. Perez a few years ago, which made it so hard to prove racist intent that it's now virtually impossible. Um, and then the third prong of the Voting Rights Act is called the results test. And the results test means that if there's a law that results in voters of color having less opportunity to vote, even if there wasn't necessarily racist intent, that law is also invalid. And that's what these two cases in front of the Supreme Court are, are about. And I worry that they're going to do the same thing to the results test that they did to those other two prongs, preclearance and the intent test. They won't necessarily strike them down. They'll just weaken them to such a point. They'll just weaken it to such a point that it doesn't mean anything. Right. And and the thing is, it, it's already so watered down. I mean, we look at what happened since November, right? The 2020 election had the biggest turnout in history. It was also, the d- despite what Trump has tried to sell his followers, um, it's also been the most secure election we've had in years. And I say it's because so many of us voted on paper ballots through the mail. Uh, it took away the, the electronic component that can often get screwed up. But now... Um, uh, state governments, Republican-run state governments across the country, have come up with uh, with a record number of laws 
determined to roll that back. Like I live in Florida. I have voted by mail for 10 years now. It's always been simple. It's great. It works great. Now they're saying, well, we're going to put a new law into effect that says even if you voted by mail before, you have to re-register to vote by mail for each election. It's, these are voter suppression tactics. And and 33 states have already introduced, pre-filed, or carried over 165 new bills this year. Is- yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's really important context. I, I, I mean, what we're seeing right now in a lot of states, I mean, Georgia has a particularly egregious bill. Arizona mm-hmm. has a particularly egregious bill. And these were the two closest states in the last election. Right. Um, you know, they want to make it harder to vote by mail. Um, you know, there's some talk about cutting Sunday voting <laughs> because African-American churches frequently have um, get out the vote drives on, on, on the Sunday before election day. Right. So you know, to the polls. a lot right. of things like that that are just efforts to make it harder to vote and often efforts specifically to make it harder for voters of color to vote. Um, and while these bills, and I mean, the reason I'm being sort of vague about these bills is mm-hmm. we don't know what the final bills are going to say. Right. This is still in an early stage. But like while these bills are advancing through state legislatures, um, the Supreme Court is taking away the safeguards against voter suppression. And so that's just going to cause these legislators to be you know, much more aggressive in the laws that they pass because they're soon going to have more freedom to engage in vote suppression mm. than they've had since the Jim Crow era. Wow. And you look at how close they came to stealing this election. And I always I always talk about I reference opposite world. Um, and it's so evident with the with today's Republican Party because they do the, the they're they're masters at projection. So they accuse the left of doing what they themselves do. So when they say stop the steal, they're the ones who were trying to steal it and they came so close. And for instance, these new laws, these new voter suppression laws in Georgia, let's just use Georgia as an example, never would have been possible if um, Section five wasn't gutted in 2013. And, and now they're just doubling down on that to make it, it, I guess, to give state legislatures the ability to stop whoever they don't want to vote from voting. Right. Now, I do want to say something to give people hope. OK, like I don't Please. think that the response to this is despair. OK, like, I don't think that the response to this is that the Supreme Court's just going to rig all of our elections and like we're going to be stuck with Donald Trump as president for life. I hope not. like the way that these like most Republican voter suppression laws have worked in recent years is the goal is and like the way that, that Stacey Abrams put it is that they try to make vote suppression look like user error. Mm-hmm. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, if you make a minor error when you're filling out your absentee ballot, they'll toss it out. You know, if if you don't have the right ID, they'll they'll take away your they'll they'll take away the right your right to vote. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the issue in these Arizona cases that are being heard next week is um, if you go to the wrong precinct. Like in many states, if you go to the wrong place to cast your vote, they'll still let you vote for all the candidates that like are statewide and national candidates that everyone in the state gets to vote for. Just the, it's just like the local candidates that are only in that precinct that you don't get to vote for. Right. In Arizona, if you show up at the wrong precinct, you're done. Like your, your vote doesn't count. 
and like your vote for president doesn't count, even though, you know, it's not like you're, there's different presidential candidates in different parts of the state. So, like, the idea isn't necessarily to make it impossible to vote. The idea is to make it just difficult enough that in a close election, and especially with Republicans already having all the advantages they have from the Electoral College and from Senate malapportionment, that in a close election it puts enough of of a thumb on the scale that the Republican wins. And so the trick is – you just got to know what they're try- how they're trying to take your vote away and not fall for. It. You know, if, if they require you to get some stupid ID that you don't need, you can still get the stupid ID that that you don't need. If they require you to fill out the form in a particular way, and they'll toss out your ballot if you do it in blue ink instead of black ink, make sure you have a blue pen. Right. Like you know, you you you, you can. But beat you know what? You know that, and I know that because we pay attention. But I hate to say, the vast majority of the American public does not, and that's the problem. Right. They're yeah. counting on you well, on I mean, people not paying attention and not knowing these things. Right. And I mean, to some extent, that's where I come in because I'm a journalist. Mm-hmm. It's my job to inform people of what's going on. It's also, I think, the job of the parties, you know, mm-hmm. and in this case, particularly the Democratic Party, because yeah. they're the party that, you know, is, is being victimized by, by, by these laws. You know, you know I mean, it, it is, you know, I don't want to say that this isn't unfair. Like, the Democratic Party is going to have to spend money that it shouldn't have to spend, and it's going to have to put a lot of resources into voter education. And that means that Republicans have an unfair advantage. Like, that's the purpose of these laws, to give, to, to give Republicans an unfair advantage. But it's an advantage that can be overcome. It was right. overcome in 2020. And, you know, the, the issue is that the people who – you know, don't want these tactics to work, have to care enough about making sure that they don't work, that they don't work. Right. Hey, Ian Milhauser, is it is it possible that um, we can prevent Stacey Abrams from running for governor in Georgia and that Joe Biden would create a new oh, cabinet level position for her as um, uh, election educator or something like that? Because she's she's got a record of success. People listen and she, look what she did in Georgia. We need somebody like that who can talk to the American people and say, here's what you need to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm never going to tell Stacey Abrams <laughs> not to, to do, run for to governor, do. right? I mean, yeah. if, if she wants to run for governor, <laughs> go for it. Yeah. She should go for I it. I hear you. Yeah. Um, but I will say that, um, I mean, there's lots of stuff that could be done, assuming we have a functioning Congress. Yeah. And uh-huh. unfortunately, we, we only have a semi functioning Congress right now because of the filibuster. Um, you know, you could, you know, you create a cabinet level position to protect voting rights. You could strengthen the Voting Rights Act. You could ban gerrymandering, uh-huh. which is, you know, something we haven't gotten yes. into, but is another huge way that, you know, people try to put a thumb on the scale in elections. Mm-hmm. Um, you could do a whole lot of stuff. Um, you know, you could, you could change the makeup of the Supreme Court. Yes. If you well. have the votes in Congress to do it. But I mean, Manchin, Senator Manchin, Senator, Senator Sinema <laughs> have both been very clear that they don't want to get rid of the filibuster. I hope they change their mind. But, you, you know, if I, if I can at the risk of quoting Donald Rumsfeld, you know, you go to war with the, <laughs> with the Congress you have. <laughs> I hear you. Uh, yeah. Uh, 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 and I mean, until someone finds a way 
to change Manchin and Sinema's mind about the filibuster, mm. I don't think federal legislation is, is in the picture. Right. And that doesn't mean that American democracy is doomed. But it does mean that for probably the next two years, we have to find a way to save American democracy that doesn't involve the United States Senate. Right. So, so Ian, you wrote this piece. It's up at Vox. I'll link to it from the blog today at NicoleSandler.com, along with uh, where I post the podcast about the Supreme Court is about to hear two cases that could destroy what remains of the Voting Rights Act. That's happening on Tuesday. But then you just put up your latest piece is related, but it's different. The headline on this one is a single Trump judge is already sabotaging Biden's efforts to slow deportations. And uh, this one judge can really um, block Biden from doing a whole lot of things. Uh, And there's a whole lot of those kind of judges that Donald Trump put on the bench that have lifetime appointments now. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest stories, one of the biggest political stories the last three or four years is Republicans have largely abandoned their legislative agenda. Mm -hmm. I I mean, you know, four years ago, you had Paul Ryan running around. There was the Ryan budget. And like the Ryan budget, I mean, it, it was one of the most ambitious legislative agendas I have ever seen from a political party. Right. They wanted to cut Medicaid funding in half. Ugh. They wanted to eliminate the Affordable Care Act. They wanted to turn Medicare into a voucher program. Yep. They wanted to gut food stamps. And I, and I mean, whatever you want to say about that agenda, it was ambitious. Like, <laughs> you know, no president since Lyndon Johnson ha- had proposed such a radical overhaul of the obligation that our society owes to the people in it. Right. Um, and they just abandoned that. I mean, they, they didn't campaign on that in 2020. You know, the, the Republican Party platform in 2020 was just we support Donald Trump. Yeah, it was it was um, just they used the said the 2016 platform and just crossed out the date and said, this is our platform this year, too. Right. And the reason why isn't because they don't have policy ambition. It's because they don't need the legislature anymore because they control the judiciary. Right. And they think that they can get the goal, their policy enacted through the judiciary. I mean, this is what my book, The Agenda, is about, if I can plug it for a second. You know, they don't aren't pushing a legislative agenda anymore because they control the one unelected branch of government. And so this piece that I wrote um, that that went up, um, I believe, yesterday Mm -hmm. was about how this one Trump judge in Texas had had stopped Biden's. um, It wasn't even a ban. It was a pause. It was a 100 day pause on on deportation. The judge, um, the judge halted it. He has no legal basis whatsoever um, to do so. But the problem is that his order is going to appeal to the Fifth Circuit which has a ton of Trump appointees on it. It's one of the most conservative courts in the country. And then it would appeal from the Fifth Circuit to the Supreme Court, which has six Republicans on it. So, you know, who cares if you've got the law on your side if you have the vote? Right. And so that is what I I mean. And like Biden is may have to make some very frightening choices about what to do about a rogue judiciary. Um, because you have a lot of judges who, you know, aren't just very, very conservative, but they have become the vehicles for the Republican Party's entire policy agenda. Wow. 
Wow. And yeah, and and we're stuck with it. I mean, basically now j- judges can be impeached, can't they? But it's there's no way we're going to go around impeaching all these hundreds of judges that Trump appointed. Yeah. And I mean, even if I think I mean, I, I'm not sure if impeachment is a solution, even mm-hmm. if I did think it was like, you know, Donald Trump instigated an attack on the Capitol. Yes. Like, like there were I know. senators. Like members of that jury who could have been lynched yeah. because of Donald Trump. And after that, there were only 57 votes to, to, to convict him. Right. Like, you know, 43 Republicans were like, yeah, I almost died. But, but I'm still not going to vote yeah. against you. I, it, it makes no At, sense. It's just it's it's inconceivable. <laughs> but here no, we are. It absolutely makes no sense. But it, but I guess what my point is, is that. If they're not going to vote to remove or to disqualify the guy who almost got them killed, they sure aren't going to vote to to remove right. someone who's just a, judge. a bad judge. Exactly. No, it's 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 amazing. Just watching the turnaround from the night of January sixth when you saw Lindsey Graham, who I, I think was a little tipsy at that point, saying, I, "I'm done. I'm out. I was with him, but I can't do this anymore. It's done." Uh, to to like the next day, he turns around and flies down to see him at Mar-a-Lago. It ju- and Kevin McCarthy. One day he's like he was complicit. He this is a direct result of the things he said. And then he turns around and and again is at Mar-a-Lago. There's something very sick going on here and frightening, and and we don't have a a, a fix for it legislatively or judici- judicially. Um, so I I I, I am. I, I appreciate you trying to be optimistic here, but I'm kind of freaked out about where we are, even though I'm in a much better place now than I was before January 20th. Yeah. I mean, what what I've heard, like, I mean, a lot of political scientists that, that I've listened to have said that frequently you see a party starts to change its stripes if it loses three presidential races in a row. Okay. So, you, so, so, you know, the, the, the Republican Party you really did moderate after Roosevelt and then Truman were in office for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and the Democratic Party became pretty conservative after Ronald Reagan served two terms and then passed it off to George H.W. To yeah. Bush. Yep. So, like, so three is what I am told is the magic number. And so if 12 years from now, you and I are chatting and, you know, Com- President Kamala Harris is running for reelection. Uh-huh. Think about her reelection race after serving two successful terms as vice president. Like we could have a very different Republican Party. Under those circumstances, the Republican Party could become a normal center right party, you know, something more like what it was in, say, you know, 1991. And like. That would be a very good thing for the country. Like, I I don't want to leave people with despair thinking that nothing's going to be done. But to to win for Democrats to win three elections in a row, they're going to have to do it on an on an uneven playing field and on a playing field. The Supreme Court is, is going to make even more uneven. 
Yeah, we got we got an uphill climb here, but we've had that for a while. Look, 81 million people came out and voted for Joe Biden, which is remarkable, especially when you consider 74 million voted for Donald Trump. And before this election, um, that 74 million is more than ever voted for any other presidential candidate now, except for Joe Biden in 2020. The numbers are astounding. So people are plugged in. I hope. The Democrats, uh, the people who see what what um, danger lurks on the right, um, realize this and see what's on what's at stake here. And I hope they pay attention to to people like you, Ian Milheiser, who's writing such great stuff. You're you're putting up red flags. You're putting up flares, warnings that I hope they're paying attention to. Yeah, no, I I mean, again, the only thing that I, I mean, like. You know, there are lawyers who who can do things. There are judges who can do. But I mean, even if you're just listening to to this, like we are not yet at the point where our elections are rigged. You you know, and I mean, there's there's a whole literature on like, you, you, you know, Trump tried to consolidate authoritarian power and he failed. Yes. And that doesn't mean that we're out of the woods yet. But it does mean that we're still at the point in the United States where authoritarianism can be stopped with elections. Right. And, like, that's just – I mean, like, we are in emergency mode right now, but we are in emergency mode when there is a possible lawful constitutional solution. And so, you know, if you don't want, an, you know, an authoritarian consolidation of power in the United States – you know, we're all going to have to be out here busting our asses and warning people about it and making sure that everyone gets to the polls and making sure that everyone who can vote does until the crisis passes. Mm hmm. Right. And but, and you got and, and yeah. I have to hold out hope that some of these judges, while they may have been Republicans, not all Republicans are evil, um, you know, have their legacy to think of. And they don't want to be defined by Donald Trump. And therefore, we saw two rulings last week from the Supreme Court. One made him turn over all his tax records. He wasn't he wasn't expecting that, obviously, because he thought his and I'm doing air quotes. You can't see his justices would you know go, would 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 do for him what he did for them and then um they also ruled that the pennsylvania the last i guess i hope the last challenge to the electoral college votes from pennsylvania they threw out that too um so maybe they're better angels will take over and they'll do the right thing because after all they are judges first i hope yeah yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, I've been covering the Supreme Court for a long time. Yeah. And, like, the Supreme Court tends to operate over, like, decades-long arcs rather than over the course of, like, months-long arcs. Right. And, and so what I mean by that is, like, like, this scary case that I started off talking about that's probably going to gut the Voting Rights yeah. Act. Much of the framework for that was laid in the 1980s. Like Chief Justice Roberts, this is one reason I'm so pessimistic about these cases, Mm -hmm. is Chief Justice Roberts in 1982 was a young Justice Department lawyer in the Reagan Justice Department who who was the point person within the Reagan administration trying to convince President Reagan to veto the bill that created the Voting Rights Act's results test. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and Reagan, to his credit, didn't listen to John Roberts. Reagan, to his credit, signed that bill. Um, but, like, that was four decades ago wow. that John Roberts was thinking through these arguments. Or, okay, how can, how can we prevent the, this safeguard against racial voter discrimination from, from existing? And after, you know, almost four decades, you know, 39 years, it looks like he's probably going to get his way. Um, there are, you know, part of the reason, a big reason why I think a lot of Trump's arguments failed is because Trump hadn't done the work, you know, that he didn't have three decades of law professors writing articles no. coming up with an intellectual framework uh-huh. for why he shouldn't get, you know, why people shouldn't be able to see his tax return. Um, and, you know, there's, so there's a lot of stuff that I think the courts aren't going to do just because people haven't, haven't done the work yet. But, you know, the thing to keep in mind is that the federal society is doing the work right now. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, and, and if you let the courts continue to be controlled by these kinds of judges for too long, then eventually, you know, they'll have done their work and, you know, we'll see where that takes us. Oh, yeah. There's so many, so many variables out there. We can just do what we can do. And, and for you and me, I guess that's inform people um, and make sure they are, stay on top of it because knowledge is power. And knowing what they're trying to do to keep many of us from voting is the first step in not letting them keep us from voting, if that makes sense. Ian Milheiser, thank you so much. I've kept you longer than I said I would. Um, find Ian on Twitter at imilheiser and at vox.com for his great work. And uh, we'll look out for the new book uh, coming in March. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Ian Milheiser with a warning to us all. I-, I really appreciate that he wanted to put an optimistic spin on things. But frankly, I'm not feeling very optimistic. So... I don't know what you do, but when I'm confronted with doom and gloom and I'm all stressed out about things uh, (laughs) happening from, you know, oh, the U.S. launching a bombing attack in Syria that kills 22 people and, you know, the crazies on the stage at CPAC lying about everything. I look for the laugh. Look for the laugh. So today we're going to end the show with some laughs. Because frankly, we could all use them. So get ready to be amused. All right, stay tuned. That's coming up next. I'm Nicole Sandler in today for Brad and Desi on the Bradcast. Hey, this is Desi Doyen of the Green News Report and the Bradcast. Did you know that you can help us stay completely independent over your public airwaves by signing up for a monthly subscription of any amount you like? Yes. Just go to bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm your guest host for the day, Nicole Sandler. You can always find me at NicoleSandler.com. That's where my show is based. I do a live program each weekday at 5 Eastern to Pacific. But the show is always podcast. It's always available. So check it out anytime you want. You know, the last year, well, has been really rough. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It's been just about a year since the first COVID-19 death in the United States. We were in lockdown for a long time, many of us, myself included, working from home. I don't go out, frankly, because I'm older 
I've got underlying health conditions. I battled lung cancer four years ago, and I am susceptible. Actually, I'm really, I'm one of the lucky ones because I just got my first vaccine. I got the first dose of the Moderna vaccine on Thursday. So I get to go back in on March 24th and get the second dose. And two weeks after that, I'll be able to hug my daughter again. Something I haven't done in about six months, at least, since she moved out. And it's killing me. It's been a rough year. (laughs) It was a rough year after a really rough four years. And I'll be honest with you, there were times I didn't know that I would make it. So one thing that I try to do on my show is every day bring something funny because so much of what we cover is so serious, right? And so I made myself a commitment and the listeners that each day I would try to at least bring forth a bit of laughter near the beginning of the show so that we'd have that to hold on to because things were certain to get kind of dire (laughs) through the rest of the hour. And so what happened was I wound up becoming a sort of YouTube sleuth. I found so many homegrown geniuses who were making comedy from their homes as they were locked up during the pandemic um, and had the ability to uh, make us laugh. So I thought for this final segment of the program, I would share some of my best discoveries from over the past year. Actually, I think we need to devote a whole show to this because I'm only going to be able to play a few songs. I don't have that much time today, but we'll make the most of it. There were a lot of parody songs made dealing with Donald Trump, of course, and certainly many songs dealing with COVID. I'm going to start today with the new one, a recent one. This one's from The Parody Project. You can find them online at parodyproject.com. It's a guy named Don Karen. He does all the vocals himself. He does all the harmonies and everything. Pretty talented. He's been at this quite a while. But as I was going to get my shot on Thursday, this is the parody that was going through my mind. With a thank you to Simon and Garfunkel, here is Don Karen and the Parody Project. Give it to me on the broadcast. Yep. Okay. How was that? When are you gonna put it in? (laughs) (laughs) Speed up, inject me fast. I need an antibody blast, so come and ram that needle home. Need a vaccine, so give it to me. What you knowin'? How's the vaccine program going? Ain't you got no shot for me? Doing doo doo, give it to me. Give it to me. Hey Joe Biden, tell the nation, screwed by Trump's administration. Need to find some more vaccine. Find it quick and give it to me. Give it to me. Got no fever, no cough, and no trouble with sleep. The test found no virus, I can't set a beep. So load that syringe up and plunge it in deep. Vaccination. 
That is Don Karen and Parody Project with Give It To Me. <laughs> uh, yeah, you get the idea. So I, there, I found so many great people. L- let me take you to New Zealand. You know, they went through it too. Although New Zealand, out of the whole planet, did the best in eradicating the COVID, Shirley Sherbon became an internet star. Now, I reached out to her during this quarantine calling segment that I did on my show, where I reached out to people who were in the same boat all over the planet just to, you know, commiserate with them. And that's when I met Shirley. She had already posted a bunch of videos on YouTube that were so good. And I was shocked to find out from her that her day job is principal of a small school. Seriously. And on the side, she's a photographer and makes these amazing song parodies. This one is a medley called Slight Fever. Enjoy Shirley Sherbon. But you might think it's your right To congregate in crowds despite Our losing fight against this fake virus Yes, I will call you out People are dying You say it's a conspiracy That it's all lies Imagine how the world could be So very fine if we worked together Rules, I must make a stand. They 
Sherbon from New Zealand with the slight fever medley. Yeah, there are a lot of talented people out there, right? So if you're just joining us, uh, we're trying to to rid ourselves of the stress of the week and, and try to end the day with some laughter. Not all of the comedy songs were about COVID. There's a guy who's also been at this a long time. He reminds me a bit of Mark Russell. His name is Roy Zimmerman. And again, if you look for him on YouTube, you'll find years worth of his wonderful songs that also happen to be very funny. This one is called Four Seasons Total Landscaping. Roy Zimmerman on the broadcast. Ah, Don said to Rudy, hey, throw me a presser. Rudy said, anything you say, press, yes, sir. Don said, now. Sure, what should I tell him? And Don said, You're gonna go out there with a straight face and tell him I won. And Rudy said, Where you want the shilling done? Four seasons total landscaping sun. Tweeted then deleted for mysterious reasons John said go Rudy he went Wondering if the president meant Four seasons the hotel for the other one Between the porno store and the crematorium Four seasons total landscaping sun Four seasons total landscaping sun Never mind math, election fraud, that's a thing we can fix. If we just get the voting out of politics, go get them Rudy while I hide from everyone. Rudy said, yeah, Chris, consider it done. It's four seasons total landscaping sign. Four seasons total landscaping sign. Rudy, he looked at the places next door, a crematorium and a Store. As metaphors go, that one's hard to ignore. But somehow he managed and he told the press corps, This race ain't over, people, it's just begun. Press said they called PA, Rudy, the race is run. Here at Four Seasons, total landscaping sun. You're totally hosed, Rudy, pardon the fun. At Four Seasons, total landscaping sun. Sounds like you're spreading the news. Total landscaping sun. Total landscaping sun. 
I wish I had more time. That was Roy Zimmerman with Four Seasons Total Landscaping. With thanks and apology to Bob Dylan. I hope you got a few giggles out of that after a kind of a stressful hour and a stressful week and a stressful year and a stressful four years. We just wanted to lighten things up a bit. And with that, we are done. Once again, I'm Nicole Sandler. Find me always at NicoleSandler.com. I'm in for Brad and Desi, who took a nice long weekend to celebrate Desi's birthday, and they'll be back raring to go in time for the next edition of the broadcast. Until then, well, good luck, world. Every-